uh, is not understood by, I would say, more than 90% of Christians. That's been my observation. Although I was born in a Christian family, I never knew what exactly Jesus went through on the cross or all the reason why he died on the cross for many, many, many years. I used to go to church and hear that he died for me. So I want to share something with you which I believe will open your eyes to see the purpose with which he died and rose again. You know, in Scripture, you never hear about the in the epistles particularly about the death of Christ without his resurrection. Many Christians think more about the death of Christ than his resurrection. And uh, I believe that's one of the reasons why so many Christians are so powerless. Um, I think the devil's done a great work in portraying Christ as a, a weak type of person. And can you think of the most uh, common pictures of Christ that you have seen in your life? Most, the most common ones, three or four that I can think of, are one uh, to begin with as a baby. You know, you see these Christmas time, people make little cradles and, I mean, uh, a little cow shed and a manger. You see Christ there as a helpless baby. That's a very, very common picture. And then uh, we see, I've seen pictures of him, you know, praying in weakness in Gethsemane. Again, it's a picture of weakness. And then you see a picture, another common picture is of him hanging on the cross. That's also a picture of weakness. And the devil wants us to think of Christ only in these ways. How many of you have seen a painting of Christ coming out of the grave, risen? That's not a very common picture you'll see in many Christian homes. Um, Or Christ whipping the money changers and driving out the people who are selling sheep and doves in the temple. I've never seen a picture of that. <laughs> but that's all in the Bible. We, uh, the devil succeeded in portraying Christ as a very weak, he's a baby, he's weak, in Gethsemane he's weak, in the cross he's hanging, he's helpless weak. And even these, uh, our Roman Catholic friends have pictures of what they call the sacred heart. I mean, Jesus looks so effeminate, he's almost like a woman in those pictures. Uh, it's the whole purpose of Satan to present Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, as someone meek and mild and helpless and weak. And and so Christians also find that if they are in any difficulty, this weak and helpless Christ can't help them. They've got to go to some strong human being to help them or depend on human resources because they don't know the risen, powerful Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, the death of Christ is always linked with his resurrection. If there was no resurrection, then Paul says, of all the men on earth, we Christians are the most miserable. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if there was a crucifixion, if Christ lived, he was born, he lived, he did miracles, and he did all that, and he died, and he never rose again, then of all the religions in the world, the worst is Christianity. And of all the people in the world, the most miserable are Christians. That's written in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. That is how important the early apostles felt the resurrection of Christ was. So, see, Christianity is founded upon uh, two fundamental truths. You remove those two truths and Christianity degenerates into just another religion, just like any other religion in the world. 
Many people think, what is the difference between all the religions in the world? There are many religions lead different roads that lead to the same God. And they say that, well, you know, all religions teach that you must be kind to others, you must not harm others, you must love people, you must uh, promote peace, and you must be good, and etc., etc., speak the truth, and all that. But I want to say Christianity does not teach that. That is the superstructure. We're talking about the walls and the windows and the doors when we talk about uh, being good, kind, humble, forgiving, gracious. All that is the superstructure. What about the foundation? It's in the foundation that there's a fundamental difference between Christianity and all the religions in the world. So if you look at the superstructure, I suppose many religions have said, speak the truth and love others and don't harm anybody, pursue peace and etc., uh, etc. Et but Jesus once spoke about two men who built houses, one without a proper foundation and the other with a proper foundation. And he said one house collapsed. Externally, the houses may have looked the same. But the foundation is what made the difference. So we need to understand that there's a foundation in Christianity which makes uh, it fundamentally different from every other faith in the world. And what are those two things in the foundation? Christ died for our sins and Christ rose again. So, I want to explain that and explain to you why that is so necessary to be a foundation. See, when God looks at man, <clears throat> he doesn't look at us as Christians and Hindus and Muslims and atheists. No. They're all, all human beings are his creation. He doesn't look at us as different and when babies are born, I mean, if you went into a hospital and you saw a baby born, you wouldn't be able to say whether it's a Christian baby or a Hindu baby or a Muslim baby or an atheist baby. They're all the same. And as you see them growing up, every one of those children behave exactly the same. And all of you who are parents know that. They tell lies, they fight, they're angry, they quarrel, they're selfish. Whatever religion they are. The only thing is the Christians take their children to the church and the Muslims take their children to the mosque and the Hindus take their children to the temple. So they are indoctrinated into certain religious, uh, religious faith. And so they grow up and they have that faith. I think that's true of most of us here. Why you are, whatever religion you are, why are you having that religion today? Because you were born into it. That's true of 99% of people in the world. So, it's not because they were born that way. They were born just like any other baby. But they were indoctrinated through the years by their parents into a certain religious uh, understanding. Um, <clears throat> but when God looks at us, He looks at us as those who have a nature that takes us away from God, a nature that is self-centered, that thinks only about ourselves, that thinks, what can I get for myself and how can I enjoy myself? How can I, if it's sin, sin. So God looks at us as sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned. Every human being, all religions. It doesn't matter what religion you're born in. The thing that makes us different from animals is that we've got a conscience. No animal has got a conscience. If you go to the jungles of the world, you'll find among the barbarians a sense of having grieved um, an unknown creator. They don't know who that creator is. Sometimes they think it is a sun or some high mountain. or They don't know. But there's a sense of guilt in the hearts of even barbarians that they have grieved and hurt uh, their Creator. And so they pray. They make sacrifices. 
um, I mean, they do a lot of stupid things sometimes, like offering children as sacrifices. And somehow there's a feeling that I have angered God and I want to appease him in some way. Uh, but you'll never see a, an animal doing that. There's no animal in the world. You never find an animal feeling that he's appeased some, uh, that he has to appease some creator. So th- that's because man's got a conscience. <clears throat> there are a lot of things in which animals may be like us in eyes and ears and limbs and internal organs. But there's one fundamental thing which man has, which may set him apart from the entire the rest of creation, and that's the fact that we've got a, a conscience. And that conscience is exactly the same in all reli- people of all religions. You know, you could be born in an atheistic family, you could be born in a barbarian family in a jungle, you could be born in any religion in the world. You have a conscience. A conscience that tells you that you're guilty that you've, you've grieved God. I mean, you can suppress that conscience. You can kill it over a period of time, and many people do. You know, f- uh, I think we all know that it's very difficult for a three-year-old to tell a lie with a straight face. <laughs> it's very easy for any mother to catch a three-year-old telling a lie because he, if you ask, did you do that, even when that little boy says, no, I didn't do it, you can see from his face he's telling a lie because he can't hide it because his conscience... He's very sensitive at that age. But give him 15 years, and when he becomes 18 years old, he can tell you a lie straight to your face without uh, even you'll be convinced that he's speaking the truth. (laughs) Now, how did he succeed in doing that in 15 years? Over 15 years, he killed his conscience. Now he can tell a lie with a straight face. And you and I are like that. We have developed the art killing our conscience so cleverly that it doesn't even reflect on our face. We can be thinking dirty, filthy thoughts in our mind and we can look like the holiest people on the face of the earth. This is the deception uh, man has developed. But, But inside we know, our conscience tells us we've done something wrong. We've gone against the laws of God. Uh, as I said, you can kill that conscience if you like, but you don't realize that conscience is the greatest gift God gave you. If you kill it, you destroy yourself. You destroy the greatest gift that God's given you. Jesus compared to the conscience, to the eye. You know, and he said, just like the eye gives light to the body, the conscience is what gives light to your spirit. The eye, you know, if you want to know what blindness is, just shut your eyes. That's what blindness is. It's, it's terrible. And if you want to know what it is to kill your conscience, that's it. It's the equivalent of blindness in the human body is the killing of your conscience, where your conscience does, is no longer sensitive. Uh, another picture the, New Test- the Bible uses to picture a dead conscience is leprosy. You know, in leprosy, you, if your patch of your skin gets leprosy, you don't have any sensation there. Um, I've heard of people who get leprosy, uh, lose of sensation in their legs, and rats bite off their toes at night, and they don't even know it. That's a picture of a dead conscience. You can do the most horrible thing, and your conscience is not even disturbed. Think of that poor leper. A rat bites off his toes, and he doesn't doesn't even feel it. And we feel it even if the pin pricks us. <laughs> That's the way our conscience should be. That even if a small little thing, we feel guilty. That's the way it should be. And that's the way we were when we were small. But over a period of time, spiritual leprosy has penetrated and pervaded our conscience till there are so many things we could do wrong. We can do something wrong and justify it with our reason and our mind. And... Um, convince ourselves that in this particular case it is necessary for me to do that. I mean, people do the, do horrible things and um, they murder, they commit adultery, they are unfaithful to their wives and they justify it in some way or the other. So, 
We must recognize this conscience is a great gift to us. It's just like pain in the body. What is, what is it a leper doesn't feel? Pain. You don't realize, in fact, I never realized for many years, that pain was one of the greatest gifts to the human body. I mean, not in, in its intensity. But when you have pain, it always shows you something is wrong. You know, if, if you didn't feel a leper, can you poke him somewhere, he doesn't feel any pain. That's not a blessing. It's a curse. To be Because, you know, when you have a, a stomachache or some other pain in the body, that's a, a signal saying, hey, you got a sickness. And if, if that pain had not alerted you to that sickness, you'd probably die very soon. Pain is what alerts us to a sickness, so we go and get some treatment and get um, medicine or something to cure it. But what was it that first alerted us to any sickness? It was pain. So pain is a tremendous blessing uh, from God to show us something is wrong. And our conscience is exactly like that. And if we, you know how pain when it gets intense can be unbearable almost. If only we could feel the seriousness of sin in our conscience like we feel pain in our body. Boy, that would be a tremendous blessing. And that's what God intended our conscience to be. But when leprosy comes in, gradually we lose that sensation. But our conscience tells us we're sinners. We've grieved God and uh, we cannot come before Him. We feel guilty. That's why in every religion there is a fear. And that's why people go on pilgrimages. That's why people... Come, do various sacrifices. You know, in our own country, we've seen people roll on the ground and do all types of things to appease God, to somehow wash away their sins. They're going to dip in a river to wash away their sins somehow because they know they're sinners. They give lots of money to God to somehow try and bribe Him to forgive their sins. But He can't be bribed. And... Uh, many people say, well, why can't God just forgive us if we go to Him and say, I'm sorry? I mean, if my dad, if uh, a son comes to his father and says, Dad, I'm sorry for doing that, Dad will forgive him. Why can't God be like that? Because God is not only loving, He's also just. Justice is the foundation on which this world is built. And the universe is built on the principle of justice. You remove justice from the world, there'll be chaos. There was a man I heard of who once said, I can't imagine how a loving God could ever send anybody to hell. How can a God full of love send anybody to... Hell is the jail of the universe, by the way. How can anybody send... Uh, God, how, how could a God send anybody to hell? And he believed that for all, years and years till one day somebody kidnapped his daughter, <laughs> raped her and murdered her and the man was never caught. And this man changed his opinion. He said, well, if there is no hell, God must make one for a man like that. Because he's escaped justice on the earth. No, but he didn't get caught. Do you know the number of criminals who have escaped justice on the earth? Particularly the white-collar criminals <laughs> who cheat and swindle so many people of money. They've escaped so much. I mean, if you think of your own life, many of you sitting here, you can think of wrong things that you have done for which you never got any punishment. You somehow escaped. You never got caught. Think of worse things that people have done for which they, they die and they never get caught for the evil they've done. Now, if all the people have hurt others, think of the flesh trade that's going on in the world today. Poor young girls being kidnapped from the villages of India. I read about it all the time. Bangladesh, Nepal, by crooked people uh, telling lies to them that they're going to give them a job in 
then selling them for the flesh trade to be prostitutes in different countries. All over Europe it's going on. All over India it's going on. And these fellows just um, reap millions of dollars in money and they never get caught. The police and the politicians are all in their pockets and they and these poor, helpless... And these girls would never have been in that situation if they were in rich families. Their families were poor and they were exploited. And these girls never get justice. And there's so many other things like that, you know. So many, so much of injustice in the world and the crooks never get caught. What do you think? If there is a God, you think he's going to let them all go? Don't you think there has to be, logically, there has to be a final judgment when all these people will be brought to justice. The Supreme Court of any country is not the final court of justice. Because many millions, and I really mean millions, have escaped, having hurt others and harmed others incredibly, seriously, and they've escaped. That itself proves to me there must be a God. And there must be a God who will one day judge all of this, and the Bible says there is. God is one day going to judge everything. You can say, well, you know, we don't understand God. We can think, how can God remember all the things that every single human being ever did? Um, One of the pictures I have used... Uh, one of the pictures that's come to my own mind, you know, when it speaks about the final judgment of God in Revelation 20, it says there that when the Lord sits on his throne to judge all humanity and they all stand before him, it says here in Revelation 20, 12, that the dead all stand before God. And then it says the books were opened. And they were judged according to the things written in the books. And now, by the way, this was written in the first century. The Bible, the last book of the Bible, was written in around 95 AD. And in those days, when they talk about a book, it's not a book like this. There was no printing. There was no binding. What they meant by books is a scroll. And if you read history, you know that in the first century, they used to write on parchment, and they used to roll it up in a scroll. And if you wanted to go to the next, it was one long scroll. You roll up this side and then you keep, it keeps moving. And on the, uh, here is the other end of the scroll. The closest thing that we have to that today is a videotape. You know, where you wind up one side and the other side opens out. That's what a scroll looked like in the Old Testament. So I want to read it like that. And they all stood before God and the videotapes were taken out. And uh, the rewind button is pressed way back to the beginning. And the play button is pressed. And all the... This is an amazing videotape that records not only our words and actions and deeds, but also our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives. This videotape is our memory. And if you make a little bit of effort, you can think back to some of the terrible things you did 10 years ago, right? Uh, And you can think also of the many good things you did to other people that we have a good memory for. And we have a very good memory for the bad things that other people did to us, right? We usually have a poor memory for the bad things we have done to other people, but we have got a good memory for the bad things that other people have done to us. But in the videotape, everything is there. I remember hearing of a man, a neurosurgeon, who was operating on a man in his brain. And I don't know how it is that when a man's brain is being operated, because the center of all pain is there, he doesn't feel pain when they touch over there. That's what I was told. And then... And when this neurosurgeon touched some part of his brain, this guy suddenly could remember certain things which he hadn't uh, uh, thought of for a long time because it's all there in the memory. I mean, because our memory is weak, we can't remember what he did 45 years ago. But when it's all stimulated, it's there. It's all recorded. 
Every single thing is recorded. There's nothing that's not recorded. From the day you were born, a videotape started running in your memory. And all that God has to do in the day of judgment is rewind the button and the whole thing is there. So anybody who thinks he's lived a pretty good life, God says, okay, let's see. Watch the videotape. And your thoughts, attitudes, motives, and every single thing that you did, which nobody ever knew, is all going to be played back on the screen. They say, what do you think? Are you clean? Are you holy enough to come into God's presence? The answer is no. We are guilty. And can a just God ignore sin? I mean, if, I, if I'm a judge in a court and my own son is standing there as a criminal brought before me, and he says, Dad, don't you love me? I'm sorry for what I did. Let me go. You think I can let him go? No. Even a human judge would not do that. He'd lose his job. So let's say this is not a very serious crime, but a crime that requires a, some type of fine. So I say, okay, well, you're fined the full penalty of the law, $200,000. He doesn't have $200,000. Where is he going to pay that from? And he thinks dad is very hard. He's a hard man. I'm his son. I'm saying I'm sorry. You see, I'm answering that question which many people ask. When I come to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did. Can't he just let me go? That's exactly what my son asked me in the court. Dad, can't you let me go? I said, I'm sorry for what I did. No, son, I can't let you go. $200,000, pay the fine or go to jail. He doesn't have the money. And what do I do? I take off my robes. I step down from my seat. I take out my checkbook and write a check for him. Probably empty out my bank account. And pay him to give him a check for $200,000 and say, Son, go and give that and pay the fine. You're free. That's exactly what God did. That is what the world uh, is thinking of today. Christ died for our sins means what? He says, you're guilty. The videotape declares, shows what you, you've done which nobody else knows. You've sinned against God. You're guilty. You're paid, you're, you're punished with the full penalty of the law by a just and holy God. And the punishment for sin is to be separated from God forever because God is holy. One sin is enough. I mean, if you want to understand that in human terms, it's like, <clears throat> um, how many holes do you need in a vessel for water to leak out? 20, 30, 1. Even children know that. Actually, it doesn't make a difference whether it's 1 or 100. All the water will leak out. Sin is like that. You may think, well, I've only sinned two or three things. That guy is worse. That murderer, I'm not like him. That's like one fellow who's got only three or four holes in his vessel, thinking that his vessel is better than the other fellow who's got 500 holes in his vessel. <laughs> Essentially, what's the difference? Which one is going to hold water or milk or anything? Neither. Do you understand how it doesn't make a difference before God? Whether your sins are five or 500? The connection is broken. I mean, I'll take the other example. A better example is electricity. See, this light burns because two wires have touched. I hope, I mean, you all know that. If you don't know, you know it now. That uh, when you put on a switch, all that that switch does is make two wires touch. That's all it does. The wires go from the bulb to a switch, and they are kept apart. And the moment you put on the switch, the wires touch, and the light comes. Because the current begins to flow then. Now, if you keep that wire separated by 0.1 inch, or a hundred feet. It's just the same. No current. It doesn't matter whether it's a hundred feet apart or point one inch apart. The connection is broken. And the connection between man and God is broken with one sin. Or a hundred sins. So the punishment for sin is not sickness. Some people think like that, you know. Oh, because I sinned, therefore I'm sick. Or because I sinned, I lost some money. Or I had a financial crisis. No, 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 no. This is nothing. 
The punishment for sin is to be separated from God forever. And that is the price you and I have to pay. And if somebody is willing to take the punishment for my sin, just like I said, I took off my robes as a judge and took out my checkbook and took out my entire, paid my entire life savings and gave it to my son. If somebody has to take the punishment for my sin, the punishment he has to pay is to be separated from God forever. Uh, you need to understand this. You know, many of us may have seen the film, The Passion of Christ. And I think most Christians would cry when they see how he was, how Jesus was beaten and hammered and ill-treated. I did when I saw that. But I've seen that the physical suffering of Christ is almost nothing compared to the real suffering which he went through on the cross when he died for my sins and your sins. Because what is the punishment? I mean, I thought of this. What, I mean, if Christ only died physically on the cross, and that's what the whole world thinks of today, Christ hung on the cross for six hours. It's true. And he died. But if that physical death is the punishment for sin. Now think of it. All of us are intelligent, logical, reasoning people. If physical death is the punishment for my sin, then when I die physically, I paid the punishment for my sin. Right or wrong? When you die physically, you paid the punishment for your sin. And there is no double punishment. Every person who dies has paid the punishment for his sin. He should go to heaven. Every single human being should go to heaven because when he dies, he's paid the punishment. So did Jesus only die physically? Is physical death the punishment for sin? No. So if Jesus died only physically, then he has not paid the punishment for my sin. This is what I was trying to say to you earlier that I want to explain to you what the death of Christ really involves. What is the punishment for sin? It is to be separated from God. That's what hell is. You know, the Bible speaks about hell as a place of fire and worms and all that. I think Jesus uses picture language because those are the most terrible things which, by which we understand pain on the earth, to be burnt. Worms biting us all the time. That's a picture of suffering on the earth. And Jesus used picture language because he can't explain to us spiritual things. And so he uses earthly language to explain to us that the suffering is intense. Jesus used about weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the meaning is, it's, the Lord is trying to portray to us that you're cut off from God for eternity. It's the most horrible um, punishment any human being can experience. And when Christ hung on the cross, um, he, he was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. And at 12 noon, something began to happen. The sky was darkened. The earth began to sh shake. And it was like a thunderstorm and everything. And for three hours, it was total darkness. I believe it was pitch dark. And more than that, he cried out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? What did he suffer there? In his own words, he was forsaken by his heavenly Father. For no crime that he had committed. He lived a perfect life. Why should he be cut off? Why should I pay the $200,000 for the crime my son committed? Because I loved him. Why should Jesus be cut off and I am the one who should be cut off? 
because he loved me. Because he loved you. He was actually cut off. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was literally forsaken. That was the greatest agony that he suffered on the cross. The nails and the crown of thorns and all, nothing compared to being forsaken by God. We don't understand that because we are not such spiritual beings. We are so carnal that even if you're not in fellowship with God for a whole day, it doesn't bother you. But for Jesus, who had lived with the Father for all eternity, even to be cut off for a second, was the most intense agony that you could ever think of. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 11 says that uh, the Father is the head of Christ. Now think if somebody took your head and wrenched it off. Um, I think you would suffer some pain, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's, it's something like that. Every, every picture we use is unable to present to us the agony of Christ's suffering for those three hours on the cross. And the other proof is, throughout his life, if you read the Gospels, he always spoke to his heavenly Father as Father. Whenever he prayed, he said, Father. He taught his disciples to say, Father, Father, Father. Don't call him God, call him Father. In the Old Testament, they called him God because they couldn't know him as Father. But Jesus said in John 17, I have revealed your name to the disciples. What is that name? Father. Nobody in the Old Testament knew him like that. But he came and he would say, My Father. He would say, Your Heavenly Father. Father, 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 Father. In all of his entire life on earth, he called him Father, except once. When he hung on the cross, he said, My God. My God. Why didn't he say, My Father. My Father. Why have you forsaken me? Like he normally spoke to his Father. Why did he use the expression, My God. My God. Because now he was not hanging there in the relationship he always had. He was now hanging there before the judge of the universe. Paying the price for the sins you've committed and which you committed today. And yesterday, and last year, and all your life, and the sins I've committed. He's, he was hanging there before the judge of the universe saying, God, don't punish him, punish me. I'll take it. I'll pay the debt. I know he's, he's the one who owes you the debt, but I'll take it, I'll pay it. And what a price it was. It wasn't money. The Bible says you're not redeemed with silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. He poured out his life. The Bible, there's a verse in Leviticus which says the life of the soul is in the blood. And that life was poured out. It wasn't just physical death. Um, a person who never repents of his sin on earth faces the prospect of being eternally separated from God in what the Bible calls hell. Eternal. And what Jesus suffered in those three hours on the cross was what you would suffer in eternity in hell. So the eternity in hell was concentrated into three hours on the cross. And not just one person. The combined suffering of billions of human beings for eternal ages in hell. Take all of that and concentrate it into three hours on the cross. That's what Jesus suffered from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day. It was so intense. Um, it's difficult to describe it. I don't think we'll ever understand it till we see him face to face. I have tried for years. I mean, I never understood all this when I first got converted. When I first got converted, all I knew about Christ was what they show in Passion of Christ. He died, he hung, he was beaten, he was hammered. And I felt so sad that he did, did all that. But as 
as i came closer to god closer to the heart of god he revealed to me things that were inside his heart which were not obvious on the outside you know when you're a superficial type of christian you'll know god only superficially and the suffering of christ on the cross you'll only only know in a superficial way oh the nails how painful it must have been and etc etc but when you're a deep christian seeking to get into the depths of god god will show you things that are in the depths of christ suffering on the cross which that's how he showed it to me i mean after i'd been a christian for 20 30 years after being born again christian for 20 30 years i began to understand what christ suffered on the cross as i got closer to the heart of god that it was the concentrated suffering of millions of people of all humanity no hindus muslims christians here christ died for all human beings because all are sinners he doesn't look at people as different religions everyone has sinned he took the concentrated punishment of all the sins of all humanity the suffering that billions of people would go through in hell for eternity concentrated into 3 hours hung there and he said my god my god why have you forsaken me now listen to another thing um that was the only prayer of jesus which did not get an answer Do you know that every prayer of Jesus always got an answer immediately? At the tomb of Lazarus he said Lazarus come forth and it didn't even take 1 minute for Lazarus that dead man to come out of the grave. His prayers were so powerful. When he turned water into wine it was not a gradual process it was in a moment. His prayers were answered instantaneously. There was never a delay. for the prayers of Jesus to be answered because he lived his life so faithfully before his heavenly father but there was one prayer of his which was never answered he asked a question why have you forsaken me he wants an answer when your little son comes and asks you daddy why did you do this Supposing you spank your child and he asks you daddy you spanked me why did you spank me are you going to tell him Of course you'll tell him He's saying why have you forsaken me No reply Why Because when a man is forsaken by God God doesn't even speak to him No God doesn't speak to anybody in hell you know that He doesn't speak to anybody in hell And when Jesus cried out there was no reply There are so many things there on the cross that we haven't seen because we look at it so superficially we read the bible so superficially our lives are so superficial our christianity is so superficial But when we see all of this we see the depth of his love for us. Now go back a few hours to Gethsemane, a few hours before he hung on the cross. Late at night he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, "Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink it. I don't want to drink it. What was this cup which he did not want to drink was it physical death <laughs> can you imagine jesus being afraid of physical death i've read stories of martyrs in the first second century who went singing to the stake and when they were burned and the lions would come to eat them they would sing songs of praise can you imagine jesus being a coward oh father don't let me go to the cross he would have been ready to go to a million calvaries any day He was not scared. There was something else. There was something else. He was not afraid of being put to shame. He was not afraid of being hung up in an underwear on the cross and being despised and ridiculed and he was not afraid of any of those things. He was the most fearless man that ever walked on this earth. But there was something else. He said, "Father, I don't want to drink this cup." 
You know what that cup was? The break of fellowship with his father for three hours. Which he had enjoyed from all eternity. We don't understand that. That was the thing he loved the most. If you want to understand it in your terms, think of what you value the most in your life. Is it your job? Is it being taken away? Would you pray, oh God, don't take it away? Is it your bank account? Some hacker got into your bank account and rifled and took out all the money from there. Don't, Lord, don't let that happen. Is it your health? Lord, don't take away my health. Is it your marriage? There's so many things that are precious to us, which we don't want to lose. You don't want to lose your marriage. You don't want to lose your children. How many of you would want to lose your children in death? Oh, no, Lord, don't take it away. Do you know what was most precious to Jesus? His fellowship with his father. And if you had an only child and that child was dying, how you would pray, oh, father, don't take him away. That's how Jesus prayed. Don't let this fellowship between you and me break up. And I can picture, I'm using my imagination now in Gethsemane. It says he prayed there for one hour. Father, does this fellowship between you and me have to be broken up? I know it's only for a short time, but I don't want to lose it for even one second. And I can imagine the father telling him, well, you don't have to lose that fellowship. You've lived a perfect life. You can come straight up from Gethsemane to heaven. Come and be back with me forever. But put your name there. But Zach will go to hell. Oh. And Jesus thinks, thinks about me. Zach will go to hell. Okay, Father, I'll drink the cup. You know, the first, it was, I think, more, nearly 20 years after I was born again that I understood this. I wept when I saw how much he loved me. And I said, Lord, shame on me that I love you so little, that I serve you so little, that I think I have made sacrifices for you. I've never made any sacrifice for you in my life. Even if I live all my life and pour out my life in service for you, it will be nothing compared to what you did for me. How selfishly I have lived on earth, thinking of myself, my needs, and my not understood how selflessly you lived on, on earth for me. But Zach will go to hell. Oh, then I'll drink it. Put your name there. It was for you. And he went to the cross. And how do we know that he took my punishment? I want to know whether my debt is cleared. I want to see a certificate that the debt I owed to my creditor, Almighty God, has been cleared. The proof is here. At the end of three hours, he said, it is finished. It's finished. The debt is cleared. And his fellowship was restored with his father. How do we know that? Do you know his last words on the cross? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He didn't call him God now. It was back to the old relationship. Father. So picture this in your, in your mind. Always Jesus prayed, Father, 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 Father. Then suddenly a drop. Three hours. He was God. God, my God, my God. And then back again, Father. Fellowship was restored. That's how I know that my sins were paid for. Completely. It is finished. Three hours of concentrated suffering. The hell I should experience, he experienced. He stood there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No reply. And then back again to fellowship with the Father. It is finished. It's finished. Zach doesn't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to hell. It's finished. 
Your debt has been paid. Father, into your hands I come in my spirit. And further proof of it is three days later, he came out of the grave. Resurrection. The proof that everything he said was true. Now, I just want to add a word of clarification here. There are some charismatic people who teach that Jesus went to hell for three days to suffer our punishment. That's a lot of rubbish. It is a lot of rubbish. There are some great preachers who preach that. He went to three, for three days to paradise. He told his thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me not in hell, but in paradise. The thief went to paradise, and he went to paradise too. The other thief went to hell, I know that. But Jesus didn't tell the other thief, I'm going to come with you. He told the thief who was going to paradise, I'm going to be with you today. So where did he go? He was in paradise for three days. Paradise was in the heart of the earth, which in the Hebrew language is called Sheol. In the Greek language is called Hades. Unfortunately translated as hell in the King James Version. But really, the word is Hades, a place of departed spirits, which had two sections, paradise and hell. Jesus went to the paradise section with the thief on the cross. Because the punishment is over on the cross. He didn't have to pay any more. He said it's finished on the cross. There's nothing more to be done. I just add that as a word of clarification. And he rose up from the dead. Came back into that body. And was seen on earth for 40 days. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, as I said in the beginning, we Christians are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. We are the most deluded and uh, we're not only deluded, we are crooks <laughs> going around promoting a religion which is just as false as any other. Why do I believe the Christian faith is the only true faith in the world? Because of two things. There is only one person who ever walked this earth who even said that he came here to die for my sins. Who even said it and did it. And there is only one human being that ever walked on this earth who rose from the dead never to die again. There were people who were raised from the dead who died again like Lazarus. But conquered death. Conquered death means he never died again. Lazarus did not conquer death. He was raised up and he died again. Death conquered him finally. But Jesus conquered death. He rose from the dead and he's alive and he went up to heaven. And when he went up to heaven he sent his spirit you know, before he went up to heaven, he told his disciples, it's good for you to, that I go away. And they couldn't understand it. Uh, they said, how can it be good? I mean, when he's there with us, <laughs> all our problems are solved. If there's a storm on the lake, that's still, if there's not enough food at a marriage feast, that's supplied. <laughs> if there's uh, not enough bread and fish for everybody to eat, that's supplied. If somebody is sick, he's healed. How can it be better for Jesus going away? And here's the explanation. That if Jesus was on earth, it's only the people in Israel who could have been blessed. The people in India would never have got it. Or the United States or anywhere else. But when he went up to heaven, he sent his spirit. And his spirit uh, can be in, inside us, wherever we live on the face of the earth. It's like having Jesus in, in us. It is actually having Jesus in us. That when I open my, my heart to the Holy Spirit, it's exactly the same as Christ not just being with me but in me it's even better than being with me so that this Christ could never come and live with me if he had not risen from the dead he died and he rose again those are the two things which are the foundation of the Christian life of the Christian faith you remove those two things we've got a sand foundation and that is why I say the only, how, only foundation on which I want to build my life and my home and my church and my family is this foundation. Christ died and rose again from the dead, conquered death. See, death is man's greatest enemy. Of all the fears we have on, in our life, the greatest fear is the fear of death. We have fear of losing our jobs. We have fear of sickness. We have fear of financial crises. We have so many fears. But at the top of it all, the greatest fear of all is the fear of death. We fight that and fight that more than anything else. And the Bible says that Jesus has 
Christ has come to deliver us from the fear of death. And when he delivers us from the fear of death, he delivers us from all the inferior fears as well. He comes to live in us. To enable us to share in his triumph. And if we are Christians, if we have received this Christ and this Holy Spirit into our hearts, do you know, my brother, sister, what is your greatest responsibility now? It is to demonstrate by your life that Christ is living. To speak words, anybody can speak words. But to demonstrate by your life that this Jesus who walked the streets in Israel 2,000 years ago, who died, is risen again and has come to live in me, he is living. And uh, he lives in me. I talk to him. He talks to me. He guides me along life's pathway. There is no problem that this Jesus cannot solve. Absolutely none. He may not always solve it the way I think he should. But his solution is always the best. He is triumphant. And... Uh, he loves me so much that the Bible says he controls all the circumstances of my life. It's amazing. He brings me into a very blessed position of uh, being an object of God's care. It's not just me, you too. If you surrender your life to him. See, one of the wonderful things about God is that he doesn't take away our free will. Never. If you don't want to yield to him, he won't force his way into your heart. He's a thorough gentleman. He says, I, I stand at the door and knock, the door of your heart. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. He doesn't barge his way into people's lives if they don't want him. He's not a thief. He's not a burglar. He's a gentleman. He knocks at the door of your heart. Can I come into your life? Can I run your life? Say, no, Lord, no, thank you, not really. Okay, he'll go away. I guarantee he'll go away because he respects your free will. And when he comes in, he doesn't occupy every room. He knocks at every room. And he will only occupy those rooms you give to him. Do you know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'll picture it for you. Think of a hotel building with, say, 500 rooms on the bank of a river, and you're seeing, looking at that hotel from the other side of the river. And you look at the hotel, none of the rooms are occupied. There's no light in any room, except one little room, there's light. And if I were to ask you a question, is there light in that hotel? Yes. Is the hotel filled with light? No. Our heart is like a house with a 500 rooms. I can ask Jesus to come into one of those rooms. Lord, forgive my sin. Come into my heart. Has he come in? He has. Are you filled with the Spirit? No. That depends on whether you open the door of the other rooms to him and let him in. Uh, will you allow him to look through all the books you're reading? And throw away the ones which he thinks you should not read? Will you allow him to control the remote on your television and tell you the channels you should not look at? The R-rated movies that he wants you to throw out? See, we don't want him to come and interfere in those areas, and he will not. That room in will remain in darkness. That one area of your life will be darkness or some financial area where you don't want him to come and tell you how you should handle your money and all. That area will be darkness in your life. Wherever he comes in, there's light. Many Christians have got one room in their heart. They live in darkness because they don't open their hearts to the light of the world. I, years ago, I read a, a little poem 
which went something like this, that if Jesus one day came to your house, how would you respond? I mean, picture this in your mind, that one day you hear a knock on your door, and as you open the door, it's Jesus himself standing there. I'm amazed. And he says, can I come and spend a couple of days with you? What will you say? Of course, Lord. Sure. Please come in. And you'll welcome him. You'll give him your best room. You'll give him the best food. Won't you do that? Of course. But I think you'll speak a little kindly to your wife that day. And you won't yell at your children so much. And uh, you may not watch certain television programs that day, which you normally watch. You may like to hide some books which are lying around, some magazines and all. There will be certain modifications in your house that day. Uh, you know, the way you speak and the way you... Many things. Because Jesus is in the house. And after two days of this strenuous way of living, he comes and says, okay, I'm going now. Of course you say, no, 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 Lord, don't go. But he says, no, I have to go. And he goes away. What do you say? Now I can relax and live the way I normally live. Now I can watch those movies again, which I couldn't watch when Jesus was here. Now I can speak to my wife the way I always speak to her, or to my husband. We say, Christ is the head of this house. He lives here. Does he really live in your house? I doubt. Do we want him? If we want him, he'll come. If I sit and watch a television program, I, I ask myself, can Jesus sit here and watch that with me? If not, I don't want to see it. I don't care how interesting it is, or on the internet particularly. The internet is worse than television. With a click of your mouse, you can <laughs> go so many places where Jesus doesn't want you to go. But if you yield to him, it's the most wonderful life you can ever live. Because he'll clean up your life. You know, many Christians are living in a pretty messy house. I'm sure if I were to come to your house, many of you, you've got houses that are so spick and span, you love to keep it clean, everything in order and tidy. But is your heart like that? Is your heart as clean as your house is? Areas of your life, are they clean? Imagine if you had a sitting room where there's garbage piled up. Stinking, filthy garbage. Is it possible that your heart is somewhat like that? With all types of bad thoughts about other people, people you have not forgiven, filthy, lustful thoughts that wander around, it's garbage. Wrong things that you do and say, words that are evil and hurtful, garbage. Imagine a sitting room full of garbage. How many of us believe that our heart is more important than our home? Your home will perish one day, no matter how neat and tidy you make it. Your heart is what is going to remain forever. Keep it clean. That's why Jesus died. That's why he said in Gethsemane, Okay, Father, I'll drink that cup. It was for you. When I realized these things, I said, Lord, <clears throat> I want to spend my life serving you. I don't want to live for anything on this earth. I don't want comfort. I will ask for nothing except the joy and privilege and honor of living for you and accomplishing your will on this earth and sharing these wonderful truths with people everywhere. You can have that too, don't you think? Christ did that much for you. You may not be able to preach like me. That's a gift. But you can share with your friends. There was a young man in one of our churches in India who was once speaking in a meeting and said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he said, all of us have got a little world of people whom only we know. It's true of everybody sitting here. 
There are certain people in this world whom only you know. Nobody else in this room knows them. People you meet at work, some of your relatives, nobody else here knows them. That is your little world. God so loved that little world that he sent you, his son, his daughter, into that little world to share this wonderful news about Christ's death and resurrection with them so that they may not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that it is the greatest honor you can ever have to be a representative of this wonderful God in that little world of people whom you know, people who will never come and sit in a meeting like this to listen to me, but you know them and you meet them very often. Tell them about this wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. And if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, if you're just a Christian by name, I invite you today to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm the sinner for whom you hung on the cross and were forsaken. I want you to forgive my sin. Thank you for dying for me, Lord. Come into my heart and forgive me and cleanse me. Give me a clean heart and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to surrender every area of my life to you. And if you're a Christian who has accepted Christ, but allowed him to come only into one or two rooms of your heart, open every room in your heart and say, Lord, I want you to be totally Lord of my life from today, of my home, of my family, of my business, my work, my thoughts. I want you to be Lord of my, the television programs, the movies I watch. I want you to be Lord of every area of my life, 24 hours a day. It's a secret of a very happy Christian life. I pray, Lord, that you will help those who are calling out to you at this time. You know those who are, who've been convicted by the Holy Spirit this evening. Don't let them shake off that conviction. I pray they will respond. They will not fight with your spirit but will surrender to your spirit. They will not be deceived by the devil anymore. They will surrender to your spirit and say, Lord, I come to you. Lord Jesus, answer prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, my friends.